1: Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy.
2: So much promise and potential of where we are,
0: and so much reason for hope, but right now I'm scared.
2: Well, there it is. Pandemic politics are back because the virus is back. We're seeing spiking rates in a lot of states because despite the rapid pace of vaccinations acts, there are a lot of people, particularly younger people, who have not been vaccinated. Though there is, I think, kind of a psychology out there that everything's fine. That is, as our CDC uh, director just said, a dangerous thing.
0: Yeah, but uh, it also comes at a time when you got governor's uh Particularly Republican governors, but not exclusively, opening up their states and issuing uh, mass man- mandates. And there's a lot of politics to that. And whenever there's a lot of politics, Keith. the guy you want to talk to is Ron Brownstein. Maybe huh. the smartest guy writing on politics today. His columns in the Atlantic and CNN are must reads. And now, the author of a great new best-selling book, "Rock Me on the Water." We're going to talk about that as well brownstein good to have you Welcome. hey guys
1: nice to be a, nice to be an honorary hack yeah well you're not <laughs>
0: even honorary man you're, you're a full-blown hack and that's why you're here uh you you you, you know campaign experience or not you you you've you're been in around the club. long enough 10
1: presidential campaigns yeah exactly. the, that gets you it, something that, there you that, go there you go you, yeah. you,
0: that qualifies you so what about this what about this uh this sort of conflict you know it it is a everything's cultural in our political divide today and one of the cultural divides are science scientists and experts uh, versus uh you know uh, the politics of particularly republican politics but the politics of resistance and the politics of you know individual freedom versus uh, versus mandates and so on Talk about this because we're apparently we're entering a challenging period. Yeah. you we're going
1: to hear more about this, right? Well, I think in terms of government decisions, we can trace this along our familiar cultural fault lines. In terms of behavior of the public, I think it's a little more complicated than that. I mean, obviously from the beginning. I mean, uh, this uh, incredibly a global pandemic got sucked into our culture war uh, vortex. And, you know, to me, it is a reminder of how everything in American life now gets refracted through the red-blue prism. I mean, the, the idea that... Wearing masks, um, you know, became a kind of culture war flashpoint, Uh, maybe a little more predictable, shutting down the economy versus keeping things open did. Um, But we were we were we've been we've been on this ride from the beginning. Um, You know, uh, look at some of the states, uh, particularly across the Sun Belt, where you had governors uh, that not only uh, Republican governors facing pressure from Trump from the outset, not only refused to impose restrictions of their own. But to me, the most striking thing was the extent to which they overrode local Democratic officials in counties and cities who did so on their own, you know, on, on their own account. I mean, in Texas, Greg Abbott invalidating mask uh, wearing requirements uh, from, from county executives, uh, which really fits into a larger story of Republican statewide power that is rooted in their dominance of non-urban areas and using that to try to uh, micromanage the decisions of the urban areas. So, I, you know, in, in many ways, the, the undoing that we're watching, the unraveling in Texas and Florida uh, and Alabama, it's just a continuation of what we've seen from the beginning. And that does follow a very familiar red-blue cultural fault line. The complication is that on the behavior front, there's also a generational aspect, uh, which, which you know doesn't follow these lines as neatly with a lot of young people really uh, as soon as uh, there was any sign that this was getting better, kind of taking it as a um, as an invitation to go back to the beach and back to the mall yeah. and back to the bar uh, and it looks like we 're going to pay a price as uh, you know I think fauci's you know it 's pretty clear that if the numbers are not going down they 're likely to start going up, and that 's where we are right now
2: well that 's the thing you 've got this weird mix of human stupidity which is an evergreen in both parties (laughs) and the symbolic politics of you know the the echo of the trump era where there became this fetishization of masks, everybody and we're learning more and more from the doctors who worked in administration are all trying to kind of rewrite their histories now that the, the the trump folks were you know it's weak it's all these things and the republican paul's fearfully Fell into that. But now we're in a problem where people are making bad choices. Young people are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where that hits politics, I think, even beyond the Trump stuff is the Democrats generally want to use government to make choices for people, while the Republicans, uh, on the most of them. I want to let people make their own, quote unquote, smart choices. And we're a little short on smart choices here because young people are making bad choices. And in some places they are rolling back regulations on the premise that people won't do that. And yet the evidence is they they kind of will. So there's some big, big debates here beyond, I think, just, you
1: know, Trump hates masks. You know, I I I think two things about that, Mike. One is that I think the evidence is pretty clear from what we're seeing from Ron DeSantis in the last few days, from Kristi Noem, the governor of South Dakota. I think there will be enormous pressure in the twenty twenty four Republican presidential primary oh, to say that yeah. to say that blue states overreacted, that Biden overreacted, and there there's going to be a moment where like everybody has to raise their hand on stage in a debate. And say, was it a mistake to lock down the economy in in twenty uh, you know twenty twenty? Um, and I think it's going to put pull the party in a in a position t- toward a position that may be difficult to defend if a considerable degree of normalcy is back in our lives. If, if people are back at Friday night football game, you know, Friday night lights in uh, small towns across America, and they're seeing grandma and they're going to graduations again. I think the Republicans are going to be pulled toward a position of saying uh, that uh, that Democrats went too far in responding to this. And I think that's a debate that Biden yeah. uh, and Democrats uh, will, will welcome.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, if he'll leave, even right now, if you look at uh, if you look at uh, polling, I mean, he's getting very high marks uh, on uh, on the pandemic uh, and his handling of the pandemic. So. Uh, you know, there, there, that is, this is a larger question about what plays within party primaries and mm-hmm. what plays generally.
2: Yeah. Let me just quickly disagree with Ron for just a second. I agree. That'll be the debate. I'm just not sure it's a layup winner for the Democrats. Because if we're in this new world where people are, it's passed, the vaccine will get a lot of credit. And I think there'd be room, even though I don't agree with it, I don't think it's true, but there'd be room in politics to make the argument there was too much shutdown. People might say, yeah, the vaccine solved everything. So I'm not sure it'll be a big winner. We're going to find out. But I think you're right about where they're going to go. On the cultural side of it, there is
0: the argument that you lay out, Murphy, which is uh, you know the 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 uh, oppressive hand of the government versus uh, you know public health and safety and the but if the economy if the economy is roaring and we're back to some sense of normalcy, I think this is going to be a pretty retro sort of intramural kind of debate for Republicans. I I, I just think. The country will have moved on. He will have uh, succeeded in navigating the country through the virus. And um, I I just don't think that as, you know, the larger public – you know, outside of the Republican primary world is going to be as responsive to that argument.
2: Well, it's going to be the Churchill thing. He's going to win the war. But if the topic turns to other things like massive spending, you know, another transition coming, maybe he won't get the credit. I'm not sure the credit will have a long shelf life. I mean, I believe the theory that if he has a big economic comeback, uh, which at least people are predicting now, probably accurately then it'll be great for his midterm reelections against all the headwinds an incumbent normally has remember how narrow that house margin is right you know a couple of suburbs go the wrong way and boom pelosi's out so
1: it's on a hair's edge it's you know you you could you, you can see i i think you can see sort of the framework of this already developing which is that if you look at where biden uh devotes his personal time where he uh is identifying himself with an issue yes he made very strong statements about guns he made very strong statements about voting rights uh he's trying to respond to immigration but where is he putting his time it's on the bread and butter kitchen table issues first shots and arms Checks in pockets. And now this week shovels in the ground. I mean, he he, you know, that's where he wants to be identified, whereas the Republican response has not been so much, I think not at all, really, to go after the stimulus plan to to attack it, but to try to change the subject to ideological issues where they think they have a, a better playing the old hits. Yeah. Immigration, Dr. Zeus, you know, and and soon to come spending. So I do think we're setting up a a dynamic where in 22 and 24, Republicans are going to try to run a kind of on idea in all likelihood on ideological issues that Biden went too far left. Democrats are going crazy. And Biden will say, look around you. You have Uh your life back. You were right. locked down in the basement under Donald Trump and I have given you back your grandkids. And, and I think it's, they're on different planes. Right. And by the way, you're, 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 you you're making, you're making more money. Yeah. You're making more money. So that's, that's kind of the, I think, I think that's the trajectory we're headed toward.
2: But we all know it's possible to punish the congressional Democrats yes. while accepting oh, Biden because yeah. it's a midterm and you know, in the last presidential congressional Democrats got punished.
0: Can I just say uh, on your point, Ron, I thought, you know, I know that the Republican meme is that, uh, you know, because they can't sort of cast Biden as a radical left socialist, they cast him as the addled dupe of radical left socialists. Uh, but I thought he was really good in that press conference last week about trying to uh, raise up those things that he wants to raise up the vaccine, the economic measures, and navigating the issues that are more, uh, complex for him politically and that he doesn't want to emphasize. And he did just enough to uh, not to uh, create a backlash among his base, but he was very disciplined, I thought, about sticking to
1: the bread and butter stuff that he feels he's going to be judged on. And that's the word that we've been applying to Joe Biden, really, through the whole 50 years of his career disciplined. I mean, that's like when I think Joe Biden, that's the first word that comes to (laughs) mind. I mean, for for half a century now, I mean, I covered that 88. I covered that 88 campaign. Uh, um, But yes, I think that's exactly right. I mean, he has shown up. I mean, there isn't a lot of mystery here. Uh, He is going to he is not going to walk away from these kind of cultural flashpoint issues. And obviously, voting rights is one that kind of ascends above all others at this point, because I think it, it can be an existential threat. the democratic party but that is not where and there'll be probably other elements of the administration that will be deeply engaged in that but i think where you know he has told us where he what what the public is going to see him doing what you're going to think of when you think of joe biden if you are just an average voter who is not following all of this in talmudic detail it's going to be shots and arms checks and pockets shovels and ground i mean that is that is where he wants to define yeah. his own priorities.
2: You know, what I thought worked for him, I thought he did well in the press conference too, but I thought a lot of it was tonal because the at least from, I saw two thirds of it and Biden was getting irked a little which i liked it was authentic because the press corps is yeah. still caught in the Trump era of hostility gotcha stuff so we got 25 questions in a row about hey if the filibuster told the filibuster could talk and it told a racist <laughs> asian joke would you then repeal it you know again and again and you know all the everybody asking a question has an agent and a and a plan to get a bigger job on television and i thought Biden's kind of Irksomeness playing back to normalcy in a press conference like the media, I don't think have adjusted yet. Post Trump, really worked for him. I was like rooting for him, and you know he's got me going nuts over his spending. But but it was good
0: on the border. I remember on the border question when he was asked if he thought it was acceptable for these kids to be held in the condition, and he said, "Are you kidding me? Are are you kidding? Right? You think you think I think that's acceptable?" And I thought that was very effective. Yeah, I mean, for all of the, um, uh, for all of the, I mean, uh, I got into it a little bit uh, with Laura Ingram online uh, because she said in the middle of a press conference, "Why is he reading so much? <laughs> I.e., he can't do it on his own." And I, you know, my thought was, and I shared it with her, don't you wish Trump had done that every once in a while? Well, I was going to
1: say, it's easier, it's easier not to read. If you're just making stuff up, I mean, you can just, <laughs> I mean, you don't have to read anything. I just, <laughs> right, whatever, exactly. whatever, whatever comes to mind is, uh is acceptable. You know, there, there is, I think, it, I, I think there's a political vision behind this that is, is going to be a testable proposition, a contestable uh, proposition. We're going to see whether it works out. And I, and, and I think Biden genuinely believes You know, really through the kind of the ancestral roots uh, in in politics back in the 70s and 80s, that if he dials down the culture war and provides material assistance to working class families really now across racial lines, it's not only it's mostly working class whites, but it's also to some extent Hispanics uh, that he can win back voters who are drawn to Republican messages on culture and race. That's his belief
2: that was his monkey trick in the election he was not as scary as the rest of his party the problem is the democratic on deck circle looks nothing like biden that's the yeah, democratic yeah. problem they need more bidens and they don't have a machine that creates them anymore
0: uh, look i think that's a that's a really important point because biden is the uh, it's the he's the bridge between two generations yes he is and uh, that you know you can't keep as you can't keep pulling 78 year old white working class guys out of your collective ass and and uh, you know, finesse this and that—that that is, uh, that is true. But Ron, your point on this economic plan—I mean, these benefits are going to be realized very, very broadly. Yes. The question is whether, given the tribal nature of our politics, whether people sort of—you know—I remember Harold Washington campaigning uh, into, in, for mayor of Chicago, and he was running against the Democratic machine. And he would say, he'd campaign in the black community where money was often changed hands on the street, street money to voters. And he used to say, take their money and vote for Harold. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And the question is whether these white working class voters take the money, but don't give Biden credit for it, and instead translate the spending into their tax dollars going to undeserving
2: poor people, i.e.
0: minorities, which is... uh, you know, I've sat in—I uh, not sat in—but I've heard of a number of focus groups recently with sort of Biden-Trump voters and Trump voters and so on. And they get their information; they mainline their information from Fox and other places. And their interpretation is this is all a bunch of giveaways to undeserving right uh, people. Hmm. So the question is, can he break through with that?
2: Well, especially
1: now that he's doubling down. Yes, I think that is the question. And, and I think, look, for 30 years, really, since um, what's the matter with Kansas and even, uh, you know, um, uh, and even aspects of the Clinton campaign, th- th- that thinking um, uh, helped animate the desire to do the, afford- their, you know, Clinton care, th- there has been a belief in the Democratic Party that if you can deliver bread and butter, kitchen table economic help to uh, blue collar white voters in particular, that you can win back some of those who like Republican messaging on culture and race and stopping transfer payments that they see as as going to the undeserving. And uh, clearly one of the political problems of the Affordable Care Act at the beginning was if you looked at polling from Gallup and Kaiser and others that most non-college whites saw it as a welfare program, saw it as a transfer program. Um, And by the way, I think the, the political pivot for the ACA was when it was defined less by extending coverage to the uninsured, which allowed that explanation, To go into pre-existing conditions which could benefit people like you and that was the pivot when it went from being i think unpopular to popular but this is the ultimate test because biden actually is delivering maybe you know one social policy expert said to me that this will be this will provide more direct financial assistance the the stimulus plan than any single government action to people below the meat at or below the median income since social security in 1935. there's nothing between social security and this that delivers as much actual cash on the barrel head to families at the median income or below there there are millions and millions of white working class families with kids who are going to yeah. get significant benefits from this and it's still to me uncertain whether that is going to be enough to uh right. dislodge the republican control but look even small changes would have big impacts just a footnote on the ACA
0: i mean the big <laughs> internal debate and the one that you know i stressed and others stressed was I mean, uh, among progressive uh, progressives, the impetus was to get health care to the fifteen percent who didn't mm-hmm. have it, and I kept pointing out that eighty-five percent of Americans do have it, and the question is, what is the benefit to them? And so the whole patient protection aspects of it, and the and particularly as you point out, the protections for people with pre-existing conditions uh, were much more
1: resonant than covering the fifteen percent. Well, suddenly you went from twenty million people who thought they were being affected to one hundred and twenty million people. Exactly. I mean, and and you know the 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 shift in the focus of the ACA from expanding coverage to protecting people with pre I think pre-existing conditions was clearly the pivot in public reactions to it and why it was so, got more popular.
2: Yeah, we we found that out in two thousand eighteen when yeah, that was the offense issue that murdered it. But let's talk a little bit about going forward. We're about to hear a three to four trillion dollar infrastructure plan that's really about a lot more than. Infrastructure. Infrastructure. It is. And the question will be, I think, will there be a headwind? Based on the size of that, that'll be interpreted on a lot of uh, on the right as ideological, which will push the congressional debate back there. I think the old Clinton formula of get the basic economic stuff done to get those voters, I think, is totally true. But we're we're not dealing with the Clinton-esque Democratic Party anymore, because outside of Joe mm-hmm. Biden, who, who's really kind of the the um, the, the different kind of zebra that's rare, effectively rare. The loudest message out of the Democratic Party federally right now is identity. yeah. And so now we're going to – the Republicans are going to be open, I think, to make a big run at, yeah, there's some infrastructure here we could support. But the other $3 because, again, we're spending in real dollars World War II money at $4 trillion. That's what yes. World War II cost the federal government, $4 trillion. Um, There are going to be a lot of these other programs that they're going to be able to pick off one by one. And remember, the battleground are Republican suburbs that formally, I should say, formally, thank you, Trump, Republican suburbs that are fiscally fairly conservative. So right. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think they're playing with fire on this one. And we'll we're, we're, we're see if it gives them a breath of life in the GOP.
1: To me, my question is how it gets defined, because, right, the overall price tag is going to be a lot to swallow for uh, a significant, potentially a significant number of previously Republican voters in the suburbs who are now voting Democratic because they think the party uh, has become yeah, exactly. racist and authoritarian. But. The question is what ultimately defines it. Uh, one of the things that this, for example, that the the, the broader package is going to do, uh, is uh, by by you know the accounts in the Washington Post and elsewhere, uh, extend for five more years this child allowance, which is has not really gotten enough attention. And it's, social, yeah. it's kind of Social Security for kids. Right. It's Clearly the biggest change in the American welfare state since at least the ACA and really probably more likely since Medicare. And if Democrats are able to kind of center the debate on, we want to extend this benefit, we want to make this benefit uh, permanent or extend it for you and Republicans don't, I don't know. I mean, you no, know, it's a I, I bullet. Get...
2: It, it is. It's useful. The question is, do you go so wide instead of debating that there are things competing with the attention? Yeah. If they'd slim this thing down to that kind of stuff, it would be very strong.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think individual aspects, if you pull on individual aspects, including that, I think that almost chief among them. Uh, you'll get very strong support. The question is whether it's defined by these individual aspects of the plan or by the price tag uh, itself. Uh, but you know, I do wonder just hearkening back to your earlier point, uh, Ron. Uh, I wonder if in pitching this, um, so you know, there is a real passion among progressive Democrats, uh, about the anti poverty elements mm-hmm. of this program, which aren't, by the way, limited just to people of color. We, there's poverty in this country that extends far beyond that. But but would it not be better to pitch these sort of middle class aspects uh,
1: of this program and make it more universal? And, and I think that's what Biden will. Well, they, but, but first of all, they, the policy is right. I mean, as, as people have said to me, what's really historically striking about both the um, uh, child allowance and the way in which they expanded the ACA subsidies was that how far into the middle class they pushed them. I mean, you're talking yeah. about you're talking about virtually the vast, vast majority of white families with kids will benefit from the child allowance in addition right. to African American Latino families and and whatever whatever the enthusiasm is on the left of the democratic party you can bet Joe Biden I don't think we're going to be surprised if Joe Biden is focusing on you know what does he say a teacher married to a cop right, right. i mean that's no but
0: that's and that's where he should be uh, but i'm telling you that the 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 uh, enthusiasm Yes, on the part of uh, uh, progressive Democrats in Washington is for the anti-poverty
1: elements of it, and I look, I, the, I, 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 but they're the same thing, David. Right? I mean, it's not like there's a separate aspect of this that's focused only for poor people but it's a question of where you put the emphasis it's it's
0: just like this discussion we had on the ACA it was very satisfying to help people who didn't have insurance get insurance but it wasn't necessarily the best talking point for
1: the program and so from a message standpoint yeah I would be surprised look we know it it would be shocking if Joe Biden is not leading with I mean he 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 links them together I mean he you know he he is he is someone as I said I mean he I think he's going to stay they've decided that he is going to stand or fall uh, based on his ability to deliver kind of tangible goods yeah, uh you know absolutely. Ris- give you your life back put some more money in your pocket Re- revive manufacturing bring
0: yeah right economic activity to your town
2: it's going to be the ancient r versus d jump ball they're going to have a list of 42 programs that are helping mm-hmm. you know, they're probably probably going to say multi trillion dollar budget buster right. tax Big increase, government run amok, 20% for bridges, eighty percent for new welfare. That'll be the that'll be the yeah. Republican bumper sticker.
0: Well, I think it's interesting that they're splitting this in two. So I think that you know, in anticipating this, I, you know, I just think strategically they're they're talking about infrastructure as one, doing this in phases. Infrastructure f- as one phase, the human capital element of right. it as another phase, and I interpreted that as meaning. They're going to take a run at trying to get Republican support for the infrastructure package, uh, uh, the the sort of physical plant-type mm-hmm. infrastructure package. And they're going to run the human capital piece through reconciliation. Yeah, and I,
2: I think there are Republican votes if they really narrow it because the Republicans see infrastructure as ports, rail lines, bridges and money for governors to build stuff. The Democrats tend to even define infrastructure as picking you know, the green jobs of the future, and they load it up with a lot of policy, which the Republicans choke on. So the question is, can they narrow their scope under the infrastructure banner which is popular enough to peel some ours but then if i were biden i'd be a little wary of that politically because then all my human capital uh, stuff which the republicans are going to label far less kindly than that is going to be one big vote they're going to ram through if they can do it on reconciliation and then the republicans are just going to grind and grind and grind
1: well the short answer i think is that they're going to i i would it, I, I i think they're going to try to get 10 republicans on a physical infrastructure bill but very unlikely to succeed in doing that, given as Mike says that they, you know, Biden is going to have a major climate component on this. Right.
0: Thing. And that's going to be the, that's where the rubber's going to hit the road.
1: And if they want to pay for it, I mean, you know, Joe Manchin set out what, did what I, 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 he's either like really shrewd or really naive when he kind of set out his three criteria for an infrastructure plan. It's gotta be really big. It's gotta be paid for and it's gotta be bipartisan. Okay. Well, if you're gonna have one and two, it's really hard to imagine how you get number three. So, I mean, you, you know, the issue is, can they really do the the physical infrastructure separate or are they going to have to go to um, reconciliation on the whole thing? And if they do go to reconciliation, they need mention the anyway. Yeah. They need to mention anyway, but you know, if, I've always thought that the way that they were going to get their physical infrastructure through was they were going to give Manchin a lot more money on clean coal stuff that made sense either economically or environmentally, and that would kind of bring him uh, along. I mean, it, it is all, it's very difficult to imagine a single bill that would have all of this in it, $4 trillion, child allowance. Yeah, it's the you Hindenburg. Know. Seven, 17 years and here's another thing that we're we're not even talking about. I, the, the Biden the, the second half of this is going to be the biggest change in public education since World War II when we went to kind of 12 year, you know, made high school mandatory in in most of the in most of the US. I mean, it's going to go to 17 years of public education. You know, yeah. 2 years of preschool, 2 years of community college. So, okay, does that sell, Mike? Or is that or is that like is that something that is a defense for the bill along with the child allowance? All the bullets that are popular are offense. The problem
2: is at $4 trillion, the basket bumper sticker yeah. with a lot of human capital stuff, which Republicans are going to call welfare giveaways, yeah. uh, is going to be a thing. They're for
0: deficit spending for giveaways as long as it's in a tax bill where most of the benefits go to the very wealthy. Well, the,
2: the Democrats, David, will have the joyous politics of tax increases on in the midterm, too. So, you, you know, it's going to be the great progressive test.
1: So here, here's another way, one other way possibly of looking at it. The last four times a president went into a midterm with unified control of government, government uh, the voters have revoked it. Trump in 2018 lost unified control, Obama yeah. in 2010, Bush in 2006, uh, Clinton in 94. If you're sitting, if you're Ron Klain and everyone else in and Reschetti and Donilon, you're sitting there, look, you'd say it'd be great if we didn't, but the odds are that we're going to lose it. Let's just go ahead and do it.
2: Yeah, so get it done now. We got a year and a half. Okay, then let's take a break right here and we'll be right back. These
0: have been challenging times for people and you talk Mm -hmm. to your friends and your family and you hear it all the time. People are a little depressed and out of sync because of the things that they've faced this last year in particular, but that is the common human experience. And when you get into those situations, it's good to reach out for help. And that's where BetterHelp comes in. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. They'll connect you in a safe and private and convenient online environment and you can start communicating in under 48 hours. What do you think about that?
2: I think it sounds pretty good. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. What happens? You send a message to your counselor anytime. You get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to wait in an uncomfortable waiting room. I'm going to the doctor later today for a checkup, and I'm dreading the 1979 copies of uh, Field and Stream I'm going to <laughs>
0: well, BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. and the service is available for clients worldwide, and I know we have listeners around the world, so that's good to know. You find the particular expertise you need online, you don't limit yourself to the counselors located near you.
2: And they have specialists in all the different kind of areas where people could use little help. Depression, stress, relationships, anxiety, sleeping disorders, trauma, anger. I'll check into that one. Yeah, Family Conflict, LGBT them. matters, grief, and self-esteem.
0: That you don't need. Anything you share <laughs> is confidential, convenient, professional, it's affordable. You can check out their testimonials, which are posted daily on
2: their site. Here's how you can learn more about Better Health, and you can start living a happier life today. Remember, as a Hacks on Tap listener, you will get 10% off from your first month by visiting our sponsor, betterhelp.com hacks.
0: Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash hacks. And we thank BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast. Joe Biden said in this press conference, as he should, it was kind of an insane question when he was asked whether he was going to run in 2024. He said, I am, that is my plan to run in 2024. Mm-hmm. The, you know, I've said it before, the odds that he actually will run in 2024 are pretty remote. I think he knows that his legacy is going to be written in the next two years. His legacy is president and he is going big. He is going big, but I'll tell you one argument. It was interesting in that press conference. The argument that he got very animated about, other than voting rights, which we should talk about before we get to Ron's book, which we absolutely must talk about because it's so good, uh, is, uh, about China yeah. and the competition with China. And Mike, you're right. You know, they can talk about the, the, the price tag. China's not worried about their price tag. And his argument is going to be we, if we don't modernize our, uh, our, our physical uh, plant, you know, and our, uh, our human resources, our human capital by investing in both we're going to fall behind in that the competition of the 21st century yeah,
2: you know i agree with that premise what kills me because as a conservative you know the left drives me nuts with their economics and the right are almost hopeless right now there is a really smart way to do infrastructure we can borrow long term from the chinese which now we pay for everything at really low uh, rates right. and we can spend smart money on infrastructure to compete with them but we can't when it costs seven times as much to build something a public works project in new york city as it does in Paris. Paris or Berlin. So, a smart trillion-dollar infrastructure thing with long-term Chinese debt fundraising, I would be for it tomorrow. But uh, you know, I'll wait till I see the whole plan. I'll hold judgment. But Davis Bacon revocation would
0: buy your loyalty and. In-
2: You know, even partial. I mean, there are a lot of things that would – let me put it this way. I'd like to see the dollar go to hard capital spending. That's a great investment for the government. I don't trust the Democrats to do it, but maybe Biden will be different. I'll look at the plan with open mind.
0: Well, I'll tell you, uh, it's going to be interesting to watch him uh, navigate all this. I do think uh, that uh, they have to be mindful with a four-vote edge in the House in a redistricting year going into a midterm in the first uh you know the first uh, midterm of of a presidency uh i think the odds of hanging on to the house right now are are very very slim, slim. in fact yeah. one question will be will nancy pelosi be speaker by 2020 in 2022 uh not even 2023 because she could take an appointment to an ambassadorship or do something else uh you know and leave steny hoyer to preside over the election in uh, in 2022. It'll be interesting to see their, you know, given their relationship, that would be a, 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 the perfect coda on their <laughs> partnership. But, um, uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll see about that. So voting rights, uh, you know, let's, let's cue up the question that you were referring to, or one of them, uh, be for the exchange between, uh, between, uh, Uh, the president and uh, Caitlin Collins of CNN.
1: Regarding the filibuster, at John Lewis's funeral, President Barack Obama said he believed the filibuster was a relic of the Jim Crow era. Do you agree? Yes. If not, why not abolish it if it's a relic of the Jim Crow era? Successful electoral politics is the art of the possible. Let's figure out how we can get this done and move in the direction of significantly changing the abuse of even the filibuster rule first. It's been abused from the time it came into being by an extreme way in the last 20 years. Let's deal with the abuse first. It sounds like you're moving closer to eliminating the filibuster. Is that correct? I answered your
0: question. Okay. So I thought that, you know, everybody read that as saying he left the door open to doing away with a filibuster. I read it differently. I read him as saying, this is as far as we can go. The fact of the matter, I live in the real world. The fact of the matter is, he needs 50 votes plus one, even if he wanted to do away with a filibuster. He doesn't have them. Right, right. And it's, he's not it's likely a, yeah. to get them. Joe Manchin has made that very, very clear. I mean, Kirsten Cinema hasn't spoken much, but she's also said she'll, she'll not vote to do uh, away with the filibuster. So on the one hand, I think he was sending a message to, of reality. I mean, this position of, of reforming the filibuster, or turning
2: it into a talking filibuster, that's Manchin's position. Yeah, no, no. This whole thing is is chum for cable TV outrage. It's got nothing to do with governing right now. So the question for Biden is when these moments come where the Democrats said something they really, really want— and the only way to get it is this mythical filibuster thing going, you know, going away with these imaginary votes. Then the discussion churns again. And eventually Biden has more and more trouble on his left because they think that he's, you know, corporate Joe and he's not going to do the cool thing, which is get rid of the filibuster. So when the Republicans come back, they have unlimited power. You know, it's it's the whole thing is ridiculous, but it is where grassroots politics are right now. But
1: there, there there's another, but there's another, I mean, it's a dynamic situation in many ways because... Cinema and Manchin are saying they believe in these goals, whatever the goals may be, passing infrastructure, uh, ensuring voting rights, um, uh, even uh, police reform, say. Uh, And what they're saying is we have to work with Republicans. So, I mean, the question really is what happens once that dream gets punctured I did you know does Manchin come back if, if he if we spend the next two months uh, trying to negotiate a deal between the parties on on infrastructure and there is no deal to be had what does Manchin say at that point does he say well we tried we should let the whole thing go or does he say I gave Republicans a shot I'm now willing to do this through reconciliation and I think the same is true on the progressive steps on the filibuster, not progressive left, but kind of step by step on the filibuster, we're going to have actual experience. I mean, there will be an attempt, uh, however sincere, to try to find common ground on any one of these issues. It's almost certainly going to fail, whether it's guns or police reform, uh, certainly voting rights. And then what do mansion and cinema do then? Do they say, okay, well, you know, we tried and Republicans don't seem to be interested, so we're going to let this die? Or did at that point, do they say, I'm going to negotiate within my own coalition and try to find a way forward. I don't know the answer to that, but I do think it's it's a legit question. It oh, it is. all yeah. fantasy. It is.
2: Though The rub to it is Manson, three days out of five, thinks more like a Republican on spending than the center of the Democratic caucus. So they're kind of related into how yeah. far they back off.
0: Well, I mean, the fact of the matter is let, let's just ground ourselves in the reality of who Joe Manchin is for a second. He comes from a state that voted <laughs> for Donald Trump by 40%. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, he is he has a, a proposed modest gun control uh, legislation, which, you know, maybe that can get, uh, you know, there there there's, you know, uh, there's certain steps that
1: maybe he can get. 60. Four Republicans voted for the same bill when you guys were in the White House. So it's hard to yeah, say. Yeah, it was Toomey mentioned, right? It was the same yeah. thing Toomey was for. Four in 2013. Are there 10 now? But do, do you think that he's then going to say, let's do away with the filibuster uh, no, I, 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 think, I, I think this is the question on all of these things. I mean, like right. uh, infrastructure, he has said, I mean, he wants a really big infrastructure bill. Let's just take that as an example. But he wants to negotiate with Republicans. Okay, he's going to negotiate with Republicans. He's not going to find 10 Republicans for a really big infrastructure bill, especially since he also says he wants to pay for it. And what does he do then? Does he say, "Okay, he we try"? He negotiates.
0: Tried? With, he negotiates with Democrats exactly over a uh, over a reconciliation bill, and probably exacts, you know, on the climate side, a lot of coal a lot of coal yeah. money.
2: Yes, yes. I, I'm going to take up a new career as a coal miner next year for my guaranteed million a year. But real mm. quick
0: on voting rights, Ron, because you just wrote about yeah. this about this sort of race that the Republicans have between demography in some, particularly in some of these Sunbelt states. Uh, And their hegemony there. uh, And that this is, you know, as you write, their effort, fairly apparent to uh, to try and hang on for as long uh, as they can. Um, Just talk a little bit about that. and, And
1: do you I mean, is there a are they overplaying their hand? Look, there. You know, there are obviously differences in in the Sun Belt states, but basically the political alignment across them, whether we're talking about North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Texas, Arizona, uh, even Florida, although not exactly the same as the others, it, it's basically the same. I mean, Re- the Republican Party now controls statewide power because they are dominant in among older, uh, evangelical, and non-urban whites, and that is a winning statewide coalition. And that coalition, uh, the foundation of that coalition, is being. Challenged challenged. challenged by waves of demographic change and all of the, you know, in most of the states that I mentioned, uh, the under 18 population is already majority kids of color. It's nearly half in South Carolina and North Carolina. It's 60% roughly in Georgia, Arizona, Uh, Texas is 70%. So they can look down the road in in Texas, for example, 200,000 Latino kids turn 18 uh, every year. Uh, and become eligible to vote. And yes, they do better among rural Latinos in Texas than just about anywhere else. But there's no question that the the long term uh, demography of these states uh, will make them more challenging for Republicans uh, over the next decade. And I think they are laying down sandbags against that rising tide. I mean, both in terms of. But it's doomed.
2: It, it, it's just doomed. You can't beat demography of short term ridiculousness, like making it much harder to vote absentee.
1: The gerrymandering can push it back, though, too. I mean, yeah, well, that's another issue. The combined effect of the two can really suppress the political influence of these younger generations. And I think that's that's the stakes. And what's so weird about Manchin is even if Joe Manchin took steps that caused him to lose at age whatever it will be, 75 or something in, in 2024, he's putting the Democratic Party in a position where they could lose multiple senators by allowing this to go. I mean, if this goes into place in Arizona and Georgia, uh, you know, life is not going to be easy in 2022 for Mark Kelly and, and Raphael Warnock. Explain
2: to me why this is not the smart move for Schumer. HR1 is enormous, HR1 is very vulnerable. But if you were to basically federally codify absentee voting, basically take the California absentee plan with a lot of permanent absentee, no excuse, do the pre-COVID one. We actually have to register. Early to vote. voting. Yeah, early voting. You basically take the California law, which has worked for a long time and had a lot of Republican support. We invented mail-in voting here. And you might even add some of the redistricting stuff. And stop there and force the Republican senators to vote against that.
1: I think that's what Manchin's play is going to be. Yeah, it's smart and it's right. Right. I think I, I agree. I mean, I, I don't think they're going to be able to do all of this. The question is, can they respond to the actual emergency uh, that is unfolding in the states? To me, the kind of the thing on the bubble is all the, is the automatic same day and online registration, because that really could be uh, an earthquake in terms of engage- of allowing the demographic change, opening a, a, a hole in the dam for that demographic change to flow into politics. You know, automatic voter registration and same day registration uh, impact on younger voters in these sunbelt states could be really profound. Yeah, but you know,
0: uh, you, there was a YouGov poll the other day. I don't know if you t- took a look at that. And those proposals weren't, you know, they weren't particularly popular mm-hmm. and they were
1: particularly unpopular with Republicans. Oh, yeah. So,
0: um, you know, I think that,
1: that is, Republican, it, but David, Republicans are not going to vote for guaranteed absentee and early voting. I mean, there aren't going to be any Republican votes. Maybe well, one that's
0: the issue. For that. I mean, and this takes us back to that
2: filibuster Phil, question. Yeah. Well, then you get the wedge issue though, because that is that is a good one because it'll have ninety percent support. I think I think Republicans could be more cornered on that than than you guys think. But the problem with the automatic registration stuff and all that. I don't believe that that is critical to letting new demographic voters who are going to become all voters in time vote. Yeah. It may be an accelerant, but it's not critical. Easy, no excuse absentee ballot voting in our modern economy is really important. Weekend
1: early voting important. I could see Republican presidential candidates in 2024 running on a nationwide ban on, on, on mail voting. I mean I think Trump signaled that at CPAC that he that if he runs again he will do it and if he doesn't somebody will pick it up. Yeah,
2: but okay, you you get a worthless Republican nomination then, you know, which has been the lesson of most Republican nominations. Mm-hmm. The
0: irony of this all is that this is all being done in the name of curtailing voter fraud that doesn't exist. It is predicated on a fraud and it is a means of rigging future elections by falsely claiming that the last one Was rigged. Yeah, voter
2: fraud is the phony excuse for a lot of stuff. But my point to our president's uh, remark about politics of the possible narrow this thing down, let Manchin lead it, and you get one or two wins
1: if you're a Democrat. You either get a good reform or you get a great wedge issue for the midterms. I think they will narrow it down. By the way, another thing that's happening in the states, don't forget how this fits into, as we talked about earlier, the broader point about a Republican party in these Sunbelt states rooted in their strength, their dominance of non-urban areas, trying to impose rules on the urban areas. I mean, look at what Georgia did, allowing greater uh, freedom for the state to take over county election boards, which is an absolute landmine. I mean, like, I'm talking like a Fort sumter size right, right.
2: landmine. Yeah, no, no, no. It's a can opener okay. and a Democracy. I, I yeah. totally agree. Okay, let's take a break right here for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Oh, Axe, you know, there's nothing worse. You're feeling good. You're excited about the day, and all of a sudden, this nausea wells up. I mean, it happened to me when I saw the Biden spending plan this morning. You know, my <laughs> head spins, and I feel like I'm going to throw up. I hate nausea.
0: Yeah, and people getting the stuff they need. But,
2: yeah. <laughs> uh okay comrade
0: (laughs) there are other things that there are other things that can make one nauseous but you know what i'm gonna send you the answer and that's relief band relief band
2: Tell me about Relief Band, because I hear it's the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been actually clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers,
0: morning sickness. Yeah, chemotherapy. The product is hundred percent drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects. Zero. For as long as needed.
2: You know, this technology, Axe, was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea the patients were suffering. But now, guess what? It's available to the masses, to our miracle product. Relief band, how it works. You know how it works? Relief band stimulates a nerve
0: in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea, which is brilliant. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you are sick. And you know what? Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. And if you know someone who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift, which is why I'm going to send it to you, Murphy.
2: Believe me, these days I could use it.
0: I wish I had this years ago when my youngest son used to get car sick every time we drove somewhere. It would have been really, really useful.
2: It might have been your driving, but go ahead.
0: But we have it now. So don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. Right now, ReliefBand has an exclusive offer just for Hacks on Tap listeners. If you go to ReliefBand.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive what, Murphy?
2: Get this. It won't make you nauseous. 20% off, plus wow. free shipping and a no-questions-asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So you ought to get it, get the discount, read the Biden tax increases, give it a big test. And if it works, you got a solution. So head to ReliefBand.com. R e l i e f b a n d dot com and use our free promo code Hacks for twenty
0: percent off plus free shipping and good spelling. Mike Murphy.
2: <laughs> Look, we got to move on here, and yes. we have a book to talk about. We do. Focused on the wonderful year of 1974, where we all know Jack Benny passed away. It was a tragedy for America, but we also had Richard Nixon resigning. We had a revolution in pop culture with All in the Family, a sharp satirical show that, of course, you'd be drummed out of entertainment forever trying to do today, but a landmark show of its time. Ron, tell us
1: about your book, because this is a fascinating era in a watershed year. Right. Uh, My book's called Rock Me on the Water, uh, and it's about culture and politics in L.A. in the early 1970s. And this was the era... You know, simultaneously of what people call the second golden age in Hollywood, the period really from Bonnie and Clyde and uh, The Graduate in 67, extending through the mid-70s, where there were more socially aware and um, a kind of urgent contemporary films being made, things like The Godfather 1, Godfather 2, Chinatown, Carnal Knowledge, Five Easy Pieces, The Conversation, um, the revolution in TV. TV spent most of the 60s kind of avoiding everything that was happening around it. I mean, the closest we got to Vietnam was Gomer Pyle and McHale's Navy, uh, Beverly Hillbillies, Petticoat Junction, Green Acres. Uh, It was all about kind of narcotizing Americans. And then really beginning in the early 70s, Mary Tyler Moore, MASH, above all, all in the family connected the medium to the moment. Uh, And then there was the Southern California sound, these great uh, music artists that all came together, Linda Ronstadt, Joni Mitchell, the Eagles, Jackson Brown. All of this was happening simultaneously blocks apart in Los Angeles. And and it's just at one level, it's just an incredibly rich story of a uh, remarkable constellation of talent coming together, uh, sort of like the literary world in Paris in the 20s or the modern art world in New York in the early 50s, just this, this moment of confluence of talents. But at a deeper level, I argue in the book, and I think the evidence is really strong, that this was the moment when the 60s critique of American life was hammered into pop culture, cemented into pop culture, never to be dislodged. I mean, ideas that seemed insurrectionary in the 60s, greater suspicion of authority, greater suspicion of business and government, more personal freedom, changing roles between uh, uh, relations between men and women, more tolerance of difference. All of these ideas really became a part of our mental architecture after they were embedded in the pop culture that was produced. To a remarkable extent, in the same city at the same time, and and so uh, in that way, what's striking, and you know, where, where it kind of comes back around to the world that we live in most of the time, this was all happening while Nixon was winning two elections by mobilizing the voters most uneasy about the changes that the '60s unleashed. Even as he was doing that, those arguments uh, were really proving victorious in the culture. And I think that kind of sets up kind of the culture being ahead of the politics in predicting how we would live, what the country would become. didn't mean the left was going to dominate politics forever, or even that the baby boom was going to be predominantly liberal. In fact, it's become really contested ground. But it did mean that the way we live, our assumptions about the culture, our our kind of daily interactions were going to change. And I think that we're in the same situation now. Yeah, that's what I want to ask. I mean, don't you you see parallels with the moment we're in right now? Absolutely. I mean, look, the baby boom changed culture before it changed politics. And I think that is very true of the younger generations. Just like Nixon, uh, Trump has mobilized a very powerful coalition that I think is fundamentally held together by unease or anxiety about the way the country is changing. You know, when he says this is our country, literally, those are his words, and they are trying to take it away from us. You know, he is talking about everything from, you know, basically everybody, Mike, who lives within a 20 mile radius of our or you know, where where we live. I mean, the diversity, uh, the you know, the changing yeah, all you jerks. Yeah,
2: everything. <laughs> no, it's absolutely true. Look, life imitates art and politics will follow culture. And this is everything that happens first happens in California, either
1: Los Angeles or the Bay area. So even, even as Trump, I think can mobilize that coalition, by the way, which was, which has never been a majority coalition, but which because of the quirks and the rules can win power as we know. But even as he's doing that, you can see in the pop culture, I mean, watch the Grammys and kind of the, the incredibly encompassing vision of inclusion that is now driving younger generations. And I think, that gives you a better uh, uh forecast of what the country is going to look like in 2030 than the election returns uh, fr- from Trump's success at doing that much is the same thing as, as was Troy Nixon. Doesn't mean it's like a permanent political victory on the left. It does mean though that the cultural changes that he's getting so much energy out of resisting are really inevitable.
0: There's really a through line between uh I mean, you look at George Wallace and uh of that era and mm-hmm. you know, and we we shouldn't ignore race as Yep. uh you know <laughs> i mean when you look back at our political history from 1966 to now so much of it was defined by reaction in the 60s to the civil rights acts and this uh, the calls for social justice then and um I, you know i i do see the parallels and uh you know you sit in these focus groups with uh with trump voters and uh and you know, and hear them rail about the Grammys and the Oscars and pop culture, and they don't even want to watch anymore. And, uh, you know, they don't want to be told what to think. And, and you, you see, um, you see echoes of, of what you wrote about. Uh, last question on this, cause we got to get to the mailbag. Uh, night, you, you organized this in by month yeah. in, uh, in, uh, in, 74. Uh, what, what, what led you to
1: that particular year? You know, I can I can actually just reach out to my life. You know, I spent a lot of time just kind of looking at the pop culture that was produced uh, in in LA in the early '70s. Once I kind of fastened on that, and you know, you can make a case for '71, '72, '73, or '74. I think that the the extraordinary confluence in '74 career redefining album. You, you by got Johnny- Nixon resigning; it was politically an earthquake. Even more important, I mean, Chinatown and Godfather, too. Yeah. And the one night when all in the family, Mary Tyler Moore, Mash, Bob Newhart, and Carol Burnett were ever Best together. Best night in television. You could call it the greatest night in television history. The, the career defining albums by, by Joni Mitchell, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronson. But even more important is by 75, the wheel begins to turn. I mean you begin to see it move away because you know i argue in the book that really the 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 what what made the friction that made the pop culture of la in the early 70s so great was the tension between trying to hold on to the ideals of the 60s in the stonier political realities of the 70s and uh, as i say in the book as they, you know they they try to hold on to those ideals as if cradling uh, you know a diet uh, nurturing a dying flame by 75 gas lines, resignation, urban decay, stagflation, it's pretty clear that we are not going to be Kind of, you know, having the transformation that many people dreamed of in the '60s, and pop culture moved kind of bifurcated between becoming more nihilist, maybe, with the punk movement, more more dark, but also more escapist. Uh, all in the Family has succeeded as the number one show on TV by, by Happy Days, which is the perfect kind of uh, encapsulation of the transition.
2: Yeah, there's always a reformation.
1: Yeah, we, we went. You know, people were tired of fighting about the '60s; they wanted to go back to the placid '50s. I am a fan of these creative
2: explosions where forms are challenged in pop culture. But I wonder now for the parallels we talked about, about the tension of change, demographic and other change. It doesn't seem in our current environment like there is a lot of welcoming of blowing up forms. It was funny. I was watching another great satirical series, The Larry Sanders Show, Gary Shanley's brilliant show from the 90s. And I saw two or three episodes you couldn't get on even cable today. Mm-hmm. Um because they'd violate certain taboos that the Committee on Public Safety is racing through the streets. I I wonder if it's a you know, I worry that it's harder to break through forms with a with an Archie Bunker to satirize a big Yeah, guy.
0: you wouldn't get it all in the family on the air. Never now, I don't think
2: never. You'd be drummed out of television for life for even trying it one episode.
1: Let me tell you, seeing that first episode, even 50 years later, it is astonishing to hear that language. I mean, it's like a rock coming through the television screen. Uh, it must but have been- But that was the idea. I think that was the idea. Yeah. That that's what the idea. yeah. And that's what that, and, and that's what Robert Wood, of all people, who was the president of CBS and a USC alum and a rah-rah Nixon-Reagan fan football booster. Great America. He was the one who ultimately- That story is one of my favorite, by the way, in the book of how all in the family got on the air because neither one of them Was 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 a likely candidate to revolutionize television. There really was very little in Norman Lear's work in the '60s that would have said to you, "Here's the guy who is going to completely change the medium." And we're talking about "Divorce American Style" and the night they rated Minsky's and "Come Blow Your Horn" and the Andy Williams Show. But I think that was some of the reason he wanted to. Yeah,
2: you know that would do it to anybody. He found a story. He found a story.
1: But yes, you're right. You're right uh, in one sense, but I, here's another sense that, that you know, this, what, what destroyed kind of the socially aware films of the early 70s was the awareness post beginning with Jaws, which I talk about in the book, which was filmed in 74, uh, that, you know, the the, the the slot machine could pay off a lot more with a big special effects movie that could open in 2000 theaters across the country and then eventually in theaters around the world. Uh, and so, you know, the, the they, they just put more and more of their chips on these trying to get the big return rather than making a movie that might cost $30 million and actually had something to say. Streaming Streaming may revive and, and there's some evidence that the new world where you every movie doesn't have to open in 2000 theaters and may just have to open in your living room um, may allow for more voices uh, to be heard. Because the big blind spot of the early 70s was that it was still a white man's game in, in television uh, and movies in particular. Very few women, very few people of color. Uh, now they face more pressure than ever to uh, allow those voices in. And if the movie, if the movie budgets are coming down for streaming, they also have more capacity to let those voices in. So, am I actually a little optimistic? Mike. Of course,
0: that micro targeting has its own, yeah. its own complications. But listen, we got to get on to,
2: to the, the mail mailbag.
0: Bag.
1: It's listener mailbag.
2: If you've got a question for the hack, send it to us at hacksontap at gmail.com. Hacksontap at gmail.com.
0: Let's start with our guest because Declan addresses Ron Brownstein in his question without even knowing. That he was going to be here today. Definitely ah. you're amazing. Wow. Ron Brownstein declared that culture defeated class in terms of our new political identity. My question is, which party, ours or D's, has more effectively played identity politics over the decades? Interesting. And is this a good thing for the country?
1: It's not a good thing for the country uh, because it is, I think, probably the biggest single reason for our polarization that we are... the parties are now defined, divided and defined more by cultural affinity than by, by class alignment. And you'd have to say Republicans have gotten more benefit out of this, uh, over time. They, you know, have been able to win a large number of working class white voters, uh, who may get marginal benefit from a lot of their economic policies, but clearly feel that they reflect their values more. Uh, it'll be interesting to see going forward into the 2020s as the demography changes, uh, whether Democrats can get more benefit, but from the point of view of the country, I think there's no no question that this has been a big accelerant uh, in our, in our polarization and divisions. Murphy. All right,
2: Axe, here's a question to you from Anjali. Everyone keeps talking about the fact that a large percentage of the voting electorate in the country supports sensible gun reforms like background checks and closing the gun show loophole. Sadly, all these reforms die predictable deaths in Congress because the elected representatives actively block them. So Why does such a large percentage of the same electorate keep electing and re-electing politicians who don't align with their thinking? Yeah. By the way, this gun
0: issue is another one uh, of the type that Ron mentioned earlier that's going to put pressure on for some sort of filibuster uh, reform because the people who feel passionately about it feel passionately very passionately and we've just seen two more massacres that seem to be epidemic but here's the issue uh and it goes to party primary politics um you can there are people who feel strongly about these issues but are they voting issues for them and in these republican primaries uh there is uh, in, particularly in red deep red states there is an aggregation of people who um who are on the opposition side and feel very, very strongly about it, and it is all tied up in culture now uh, as well. So it's become a major cultural issue. It is stu- stunning that ninety percent of Americans can support universal background checks, and you can't get the bill uh, <laughs> through Congress. I will say one thing: I don't see getting ten Republicans uh, on board uh, on on this, but uh, but if uh, uh, if there ever was a time, it's now when the NRA is flat on its back and fighting off bankruptcy and uh, in disarray uh, because they're not the political force that they, uh, they were. But, um, you know, I personally am hoping for the sake of the country that some common sense legislation can
2: pass. I'm not that hopeful about it. I think something like Manchin-Toomey that's very narrow would either be a great wedge for the Democrats or might get done. But it is uphill, I agree. So
0: for you, Mike Murphy, Joe says, it's fair to say that the Democratic Party establishment is feeling more pressure from progressives, especially in primary elections. If so, do you think that Democratic candidates with Wall Street or big business backgrounds like our buddy Rahm will be
2: a viable candidate, will be viable candidates in the future? I hope so. Uh, I think Rahm may be retired from that kind of politics, but I, I like the idea of a vibrant centerist Democratic wing. Uh, to your question, though, Joe, parties have factions, and each faction has its own establishment. You know, there's a there's a pro-business Democratic establishment, there's a hard-lefty Democratic establishment. So there are multiple establishments. The issue, as you pointed out in your question, is primary elections where there are more movement progressives, and there is pressure. I think people, ever since Joe Crowley got nicked by AOC, there has been a fear in the ranks of the Democratic elected world that they've got to watch their left in primaries. Now, the, the record of kind of AOC-style insurgent Democrats beating incumbents in primaries is pretty thin. So, you know, it's a very fair fight. But, yeah, it's definitely part of their their calculation, and they are feeling uh, pressure from the left. On the other hand, if they have economic success measured by middle-class stuff that voters care about, like Biden has kind of focused his politics on, that that gives them a lot of cover even in, that kind of success does, uh, e- even in their primaries. So yeah, just like with the Republican Party, it's a butterfly. You always have danger uh, in your primary from activists who tend to like the cartoony slogans of either the hard left or the nativist right. So they think about it. There's
0: also tension around with suburban voters, which is the really the burgeoning new base of a de- the Democratic Party uh, and not a bastion of sort of yeah. AOC progressivism and balancing that is a real
1: task. You know, Democrats have been growing among those voters really since Clinton's first election, uh, you know, but there is a question and a big debate in the Democratic Party about whether the peaks they hit in 2020 are sustainable without Trump. And and a lot of uh, argue, a lot of people on the left will argue that these are voters that Democrats have just rented and they can't rely on them. And therefore, you need an agenda to turn out the base. I mean, that's going to be their argument. Uh, I tend to think that if you look at what's happening in the Republican Party, uh, regardless of what happens in 2022, uh, there is an op- there is an opportunity in 2024 for Democrats to run very well with those voters again, especially if Biden somehow does run uh, for reelection. Um, uh, but that is the case of the left that you know you, the Democrats can't really depend on these voters. Therefore, we don't have to be centrist. We need to mobilize the base with uh, exciting liberal policies. Biden is putting out some pretty significant policies under yeah, a pretty bland shell. Well, thank you, Ron Bronstein. One more time, give us the title of the book. Rock Me on the Water, man. I've read
0: it. It is fantastic. I highly recommend it. Ron's one of the great writers and thinkers on culture and politics in this country. So read everything he writes, but especially buy this book.
2: I have ordered it, and I'm particularly excited because for years I lived, as Ron knows, in the Laurel Canyon, mm-hmm. which is the epicenter of the book. And I'll bring us out with the you 40- or you,
0: had a, you had a relationship with Joni Mitchell. Yeah, I was going to say, right? <laughs> we were yeah. very
2: close. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say which song is about me, but I will tell you a quick <laughs> true story. One day in my house up high in the Laurel Canyon, my friend, now sadly deceased, who was a road saxophone player and a wonderful guy. Came across the street Been in the neighborhood forever And he goes You know about your pool The house had a small pool Your house was owned By low Cream Of 10cc mm. And they were having A party to celebrate The pool Pouring all the concrete and they heard cop sirens, so the drug stash from the band that was about to go on tour went deep into the concrete piling, while the LAPD raced by to the porn orgy five stories down, and nobody, the cement hardened, they couldn't get the drugs back. Bottom line, that's why Murphy bought a jackhammer. So under your pool, allegedly, <laughs> allegedly is a world-class drug uh, a cache, thanks to the Laurel Canyon and the wonderful band 10CC. I love that house. That
1: explains the permanent scars on your fingernails, right? I mean, <laughs> yes, I clawed for hours. <laughs> Thank you, everybody buddy. All right, guys. I'll see Ron, you soon. Great to see you, Murphy. I'll see
0: you. See you Thank next you. time.